and to Vanessa and to Heather and all the deacons uh, who make it possible for us to be together, of course, um, in this ninth day of Christmas, in the dawning days of a new year. 2021 uh, holds hope, not only because of the vaccine, um, although that is very prominent in our thinking, of course, but turning the calendar from 2020 to 2021, although there is no radical discontinuity between the 31st of December and the 1st of January, somehow is a harbinger of a new day and time. And we do rely upon each other, as Vanessa and I wrote to you uh, earlier in the week. Um, we live in hope because we live in God. And we live in God because God has chosen to come to live with us in the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, the mystery, the unfolding reality with which we each have the opportunity to think about and reflect upon more deeply in these extended days of Christmas until the sixth epiphany, little Christmas as it's sometimes called, the feast of the epiphany, the arrival of the Magi, the showing forth the light of Bethlehem to these Gentiles who've come from the East. And as Vanessa pointed out so beautifully, that this arrival is not for one particular people, but through that people to all the world. To come to understand that the only way for us to live today in any meaningful way and assure our own self and sense of purpose and identity and the continued existence of our life together is to begin to think almost exclusively in terms of we, we, all of us, all human beings, cultures, places, religious and political allegiances, we, fellow creatures with all the animals and the birds, the fish and the fowl, the mountains and the hills, the trees, the lichen, all of us, that one beautiful blue-green orb pulsing with life, the gift of God. So from the Gospel of Matthew in the second chapter, we find the familiar words of the arrival of the Magi, who come from the east. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus had been born in Judea, in Bethlehem, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they were asking, where is the child been born who is to be the king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. This is a remarkable question for visitors from the East to ask, arriving in the capital of Judea, who has a king, Herod, the puppet of Rome, to ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod's ready response, of course, would be to say, well, he's on his throne. Who are you? Herod was known as the great because of his ability as a builder. Remarkable architect and engineer in his own right did, in fact, erect magnificent structures, but he was also, could have easily been called 
Herod the Terrible, because he was known for the depth of his depravity and willingness to use violence, an unending stream of violence to maintain his rule. He was constantly afraid of pretenders to the throne and used violence, as we will see, mightily to secure his position. When Herod heard this question from the Magi, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod, calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, the fact that Herod asks this question of the priests and the scribes indicates that he's really not much of a king of the Jews at all, nominally Jewish, but in fact completely acculturated to the Greco-Roman culture of his day. He doesn't even know where the Messiah is supposed to come from. And they told him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet Micah, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Little Bethlehem, seven miles to the southwest of Jerusalem, the home of David, who would become the great king that would unify the tribes into one nation, the one anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king, anointed, Messiah. When Herod then heard this, he secretly called the Magi to him. He learned from them the exact time that the star had appeared, and then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, for when you have found him, bring me word that I also may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child lay. And when they saw the star that had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And upon entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And opening their treasure chests, They offered gifts of gold and frankincense and of myrrh. These are remarkable gifts, not usually brought to a child. Gold, fit for a king. Frankincense, to be burned in the worship of the temple. And myrrh, with which one would anoint and prepare a body for burial. Now one might say, that the Magi, often called wise men, really couldn't be that wise if they went to Herod asking, where is the king? Because he is the king. And in fact, here's what happens next. Having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another road. Amen. There's so much in this passage that calls for our attention. So many images, so many memories, so many ideas and emotions. It's redolent 
with preaching opportunities, but we can only do a little bit at a time. So rather than thinking about the star, a lot of us were looking for the convergence of Neptune, was it Neptune and Saturn or Jupiter and Saturn? Two of the planets were almost meeting up a bright light in the winter sky before this past Christmas, or all the prognostications and speculations about what this star might have been, we're going to lay that to the side. Um, And why did they come from the east? What was it that they had experienced that drew them? Not just the star, but what did they know? Why did they expect to find the king of the Jews if they were Gentiles? That's another great question. But today I'd like to focus on this last verse, dreaming. Dreams are so important in Matthew's account. The angels speak to Joseph three times in this narrative. First, to say to him, take Mary, your wife, for the child to be born of her is of God. And then after the Magi leave, the angel will come to Joseph again in a dream and say to him, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt before the wrath of Herod will be brought down, trying to kill the pretender, as he understood it, to his throne. And then lastly, when they're in Egypt, the angel will come to him and say, those who sought the child's life are dead, you may return to Judah. And from there, they go to Nazareth, where Jesus will grow up. And in this story, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another road. When you dream, do you remember your dreams? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Some folks wake up and they have very vivid memories of their dreams and can recount in some detail what happened. Others... We wake up, and when we upon waking, we think, oh, I'll remember that one. But then by the time the second cup of coffee rolls around, it has disappeared. But few of us, I think, wake up in the morning having had a dream and deciding that we're going to follow what the dream told us to do. But in the Bible, dreams are understood to be a particular locus by which God communicates with people in the unconscious mind. I'd like to think this morning with you about the need to pay more attention to our unconscious minds, the non-thinking, the non-dualistic part of our identity, the one that simply experiences in wonder and in a non-critical way the presence of something wonderful in our midst, or in Richard Floyd's words of his most recent uh, blog, in 2021, let's have more wonder and less worry. Wonder, contemplation, listening to the ineffable words, listening in the silence for the deep meaning of God's presence in our lives. The pandemic has brought to us each more time on our hands than we're accustomed to, because in our normal course of living, 
we are busy, busy, busy bees running and keeping up with all the schedules. And in many ways, that's become accentuated even more in some households. For instance, if you are a working parent and have young children who are in school, or particularly if you are a working parent and your vocation is teaching and you have children in school, it's not a quiet life. So we have to find a way to make time in our lives for listening, for contemplating, for allowing ourselves to reflect deeply, not just on the requirements and obligations of our day, but to think critically and lovingly about the meaning of our lives and God's dream for humanity. That is to say, more time and prayer and contemplation. Prayer is a conversation, and perhaps more pointedly, prayer is really a long, loving look at the real. Prayer is a long, loving look at the real. The world as it is. And in loving it, dreaming of the world as it ought to be. Richard Rohr, in his meditation uh, this past Tuesday, wrote about the deep connection between contemplation and action. He begins with a quote from Archimedes, the Greek mathematician and geometer. Archimedes wrote, Give me a place to stand, and I will move the whole earth with a lever. This sermon is for the engineers among us. Give me a place to stand, and I will move the whole earth with a lever. Archimedes had noticed, Rohr writes, that a lever balanced in the correct place on the correct fulcrum could move proportionally much greater weights than the force actually applied. He calculated that if the lever stretched far enough and the fulcrum point remained fixed close to earth, even a small weight at one end would be able to move the world at the other end. The fixed point is our place to stand, a contemplative stance, steady, centered, poised, and rooted. To be contemplative, we have to have a slight distance from the world to allow time for withdrawal from business as usual, for contemplation, for going into what Jesus called our private room. However, in order for this not to become escapism, we have to remain quite close to the world at the same time, loving it, a long, loving look at the real, loving it, feeling its pain and its joys as our pain and our joy 
the fulcrum, that balancing point, must be in the real world. To find that fixed place in our life where we stand close enough to be truly connected with what's happening in the world and reflecting upon it, but far enough away so that we can, in fact, reflect dispassionately, looking lovingly at the real, but also dreaming fully of what might be. Unfortunately, many of us, raw rights, do not have a fixed place to stand, a fulcrum of critical distance, and thus we cannot find our levers. Those who have plenty of opportunity for a spiritual practice, for instance, those who live in a monastery, often don't have an access point beyond religion itself in which to serve the world. Yet to some degree, our experience is necessary for true spiritual authority. We need some outer validation. We need to be taken seriously. We're not just inner people looking for ourselves, but as Jesus said, to be as wise as serpents about the world as it is, but as innocent as doves about how the world might be. God offers offers us quiet, contemplative eyes. I think the Magi, what makes them wise, is this quiet, contemplative stance. God offers us quiet, contemplative eyes, and God God also calls us to prophetic and critical involvement in the pain and suffering of our world, both at the same time contemplation and action as one. This is so obvious in the life and ministry of Jesus, Raw writes. This is so obvious in the life and ministry of Jesus that I wonder why it has not been taught as an essential part of Christianity. Good question. We are excellent at action. We are not so excellent at contemplation. We can't move from the reality of 2020 and expect the slate to be wiped clean. We have to reflect critically from the place of a fulcrum, but in that reflection and contemplation to find a new direction for ourselves as individuals, for our church and for our community for our nation, for the world, to think as we. What do we need? The world needs people who have become fully alive, said Howard Thurman, that great prophet and mystic of mid-20th century America, mentor to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders of the civil rights movement, the world needs people who have come fully alive. I believe that 2021 is an opportunity for us to come fully alive in Christ, not with frantic action or heedless running into the future, but a quiet, contemplative, active response to 
our understanding, reflection, and growing out of our long, loving look at the real, and our understanding of God's dream of justice and its fruit, which is peace, so that like the Magi, we can return by a different way to mark a new path for our lives and for our world, for God's world, for all of us. Amen.